there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. IBM released DOS 2.0 for the PC, which is sort of like saying English began. OPEC cut oil prices for the first time in 23 years. Ronald Reagan introduced the Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative and coined the charming phrase Evil Empire to describe the Soviet Union. And for the first and only time in their entire publishing history, Time Magazine was forced to recall a cover for a typo when they spelled the word control, C-O-N-T-O-L. That is one hell of a boner as we kick off our discussion of March of 1983. And speaking of boners, here's my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hello, Drew McWeenie. How are you? I am recording on new equipment. I'm going to pretend like congratulations, but it has caused a massive delay in this episode recording. Hasn't and I it, had though? A sim- <laughs> I had a similar problem uh, a year ago, so I'm certainly not one to complain. But as long as we are up, we are good to go. It is entirely because uh, you guys continue to support the show that I'm able to upgrade the equipment. And you guys do that every month through the Patreon page, which we uh, – cannot thank you enough for. If you are a Patreon subscriber already, then you know about the incredible bonus content that you get. And if you're not, man, you are missing out on half the show, because I really feel like the bonus episodes have become just as interesting, if not more varied and different. So really, you guys are missing interviews, commentaries, and mailbags, and all sorts of extra stuff. Bill Hader's been a guest. Paul Shear's been a guest. Um, Leah Thompson. Barbara Crampton is coming up. Thank you, Deeply, we truly appreciate it. Uh, I've been a part of a lot of good teams and a lot of good projects over the years, and this is one of the best things I've been a part of. So it means a lot that people like it so much. Part of the fun of doing this show is uh, the enormous amount of research and sort of energy that we put into it. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying is as we go back and we look at these months, uh, coming up against a lot of the reissues because that is something we just don't have anymore. We have you know revival screenings or we have uh, repertory screenings, but it's just not the same thing as when the whole nation gets a movie for three weeks again. Of course, smart parents will introduce their children to animated classics, uh, not just Disney, but uh, all, any kind of family classics. Uh, but there is, was something cool about being able to go see uh, the Aristocats or um, the, the film that we're about to discuss right now, The Sword in the Stone, which I would never have seen on the big screen. And uh, because Disney did these reissues, you know, a whole generation of kids were able to see them. Dramatic research. And so they go fun. Want to have a wizard's duel? Walt Disney's timeless classic, The Sword in the Stone. It's the immortal tale of young King Arthur, together with an all-new Winnie the Pooh featurette, 
A Day for Eeyore, Walt Disney's classic, The Sword in the Stone, and A Day for Eeyore. Catch them before they disappear. Rated G. Now playing at a theater near you. Check local listings. It's a minor Disney classic. You'd call it a Disney classic, right? Yeah, it's still that, that, that age of all the great animators and the guys who sort of define what we think of as Disney style. And it's it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a weird adaptation of um, Once in Future King, though, because it's like seven pages right in the middle of the book where he's a little boy that they're dealing with. They, they don't deal with anything else. And it makes me wonder if there would have been more King Arthur movies if uh, Disney had continued or if he'd lived long enough to maybe push more of them into production, I would have liked to have seen that Arthur and that Merlin again. For me, I think it's a great little gateway movie. It's certainly not among the upper echelon of Disney classics, but like Robin Hood, which also has a place in a lot of people's hearts. uh, I think these are great little intros. You know, I imagine a five-year-old boy or girl watching the sword and the stone and, and not maybe falling in love with it, but with that will spark in them the interest in the King Arthur legend and therefore maybe the classics and other reading other books, you know, that kind of thing. It cracks me up because I just mentioned when I was watching it on Twitter the other day, I mentioned that one little the one scene where he's changing uh, Arthur and all the animals and he leaves that little girl squirrel heartbroken. And it's amazing how many people immediately replied because that traumatized them when they saw it when they were yeah, young. Yeah, and, and how about the other reissue, Drew? Would you recommend the other reissue? I'm not sure what it is. Well, you know, if, if you have a chance to go to a movie theater and see Raiders of the Lost Ark, holy Christ, yes. Indiana Jones is back, pursued by Belloc. <laughs> Befriended by Solomon. Threatened by Toth. And loved by Marion. Some of them are heroes. Some of them are enemies. And all of them are returning. They are all Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the greatest adventure film of all time. I'm going to blow up the arc, And it will always be fun. Trust me. Raiders of the Lost Ark. But Drew, it had only been out like 16 months earlier. <laughs> well, and considering it played over a year in most places, it really had just left theaters when they did this reissue. But that's what I loved back then. And it did feel like, especially with the Lucasfilm stuff and the Spielberg stuff, it was the new modern Disney because it came back so often. And I think that's part of what helped reinforce it as these are our biggest titles for me. A lot of times I think Hollywood learns the almost learns the right lesson, but doesn't. And the lesson is not, oh, people want 30s throwback adventures. No, people want that passion and that energy. That's what they want. So if if, if a sci-fi movies were your passion, go embrace it and and infuse it with your own DNA and make it something new. Oh, all right, all right, we're already rambling and we haven't even started the month proper. Drew. What do you have to say about Ator? In an age of innocence, before the dawn of fear, two special people found each other. Miles O'Keefe is Ator. Sabrina Siani is Rune. Fighting an evil that threatens their life, their love. This is their journey, their adventure. The birth of a new legend, a new hero, and a true heroine, Ator. 
Rated PG. I remember watching this when it came out. It was one of the endless stream of 80s fantasy films that I would see in the theater. And this is kind of that moment where it all started to blend for me and I can't tell them apart anymore. You could watch these films in a row with a vat of coffee and not be able to tell them apart yeah, later. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons that when Lord of the Rings was in production, I think I was so worried because nobody had really treated fantasy well. The few times they tried Conan, there's a couple of attempts here in the 80s that we'll get to, but for the most part, it was done like this, super, super cheap and super crappy. And, and what bugs me, though, Drew, about these movies is that like they are kitschy and, and likable in some ways, but in a lot of other ways, they're also just a bait and switch because what, what these Italian producers in, in this case were doing was, oh, you like Conan, you like high fantasy, here's a great poster, here's a slightly interesting trailer, and then you would just be bored to tears yeah because they didn't have they didn't have money to do anything they didn't have the invention to do anything i sat through the rift tracks version it's funny all they did was make incest jokes and it's because this is a weird weird structured movie and it really is all driven by this bizarre incestuous family weird love affair in the middle of it and a prophecy there's nothing else going on i it's rare that you see those guys hit a wall this looked like one where even they didn't have much to talk about. Speaking of not much to talk about, let's... Oof, here we go. The king of segues, let's move from Italy to Australia and discuss a weird little obscurity called Harlequin. I know nothing about politics, Senator. But I do know about magic. Harlequin is the ultimate paradox. Find him and he isn't there. Kill him, and he will not die. Is he the new messiah, or a demon from another world? If you've seen Not Quite Hollywood, the terrific documentary about Australian exploitation, then you've seen clips from this movie. And Simon Winsor, who directed it, went on to have a Hollywood career and certainly was, uh, you know, a decent journeyman actor. Everett DeRoche, who we talked about uh, with Road Games, great writer, uh, wrote one of the drafts of this thing. And it's supposed to be sort of a updated take on the Rasputin myth, but dude, it is weird. He's like, it's, it's about a magician who insinuates himself into a an upper class family, and, and, and so you get the Rasputin vibe right away. But man, the hair in this movie is so funny. Well, it feels like somebody's modern dance version of the Rasputin myth, but nobody erupts into dance, but they look like they're going to. It feels to. like an acting seminar that was recorded for some reason and then released. It's not good, and I love Australian genre films, even the bad ones. This one's just goofy. If you find it, it's on DVD under Dark Forces, uh, which is the other title it was released as. And, it, I mean, it's literally, if you see the clips of Not Quite Hollywood, you feel motivated to track it down, do it. But otherwise, there's nothing really to recommend. We now go live to Drew McWeeny with the Gospel Documentary Report. Drew. The one time I got to go to Ebert Fest in uh, Champaign-Urbana, uh, he brought me in to talk about an anime film. I stayed for the entire festival, and the Sunday morning of the fest, he had a theatrical screening of Say Amen, Somebody. Janet Maslin of the New York Times calls it joyful, communal, and deeply moving. 
Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times says it is an extraordinary film, one of those peak movie experiences that stay with you for a lifetime, a masterpiece. The gospel experience is here. It's an experience you'll never forget. Amen. Amen. Say amen, somebody. It is a beautiful movie. And that morning, he had director George Nirenberg there, and then they brought out an actual gospel choir to perform live, and they brought out some of the stars from the film. And then afterwards, there was a great discussion with them about the production of the movie. It's it's a beautiful movie about a, a culture that I think a lot of people have never experienced firsthand. And I think it makes a great case for why the music's an important part of both worship and uh, their community culture. Watching it in that packed theater, everybody was on their feet by the end of it. Everybody had a emotional experience with it. It's just a great, exciting, beautiful tribute to the power of music and to the way it can connect to faith. It's also totally unavailable right now, which seems criminal I'm, to me. That is why I'm so glad that you actually have an anecdote about this movie because, man, I'm able to track down just about everything we cover and if not, you help me say amen, somebody, uh, if, if it was good enough for Ebert and it struck you so much. Definitely. If you ever get the chance to see it, track it down. Well worth it. You know what else is worth it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it would be halfway fun when we when we launch this epic project. And it would be fun to uh, resubmerge myself in the teen sex subgenre. So far, it hasn't been. What's weird is that these movies ended up getting a reputation for being very, very puerile, very vulgar. And while Spring Break has a few moments of leering, to use my favorite word. Oh, it's it's vanilla ice cream. Day. Columbia Pictures presents Spring Break. It's the reason kids go to college in the first place. I still don't know where my underpants are. Why, what happened to them? I think they ate them. I kept expecting Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello to co him up. And for me to break out a reference to the 60s beach party films, that says something. That's what this feels like. Only those corny old beach movies tried to make you like their characters, tried to make them somewhat affable. <laughs> 100% true. And it's, and it's weird because Sean Cunningham, I get the feeling that he was running from Friday the 13th, that he was running from gore and from horror and from that world. I think he was running towards anything with a paycheck. He did, I do too. And this was a re major release by... Sony. It's Columbia, yeah. Columbia. It was a Columbia Pictures release, major release. Yeah. And there is not a laugh to be found. Two guys go to... Or three guys go on spring break. They get to the shitty motel. It's been double booked. Somebody else is in their room. Those guys are the guys that are constantly scoring with chicks, and they kind of teach them how to be more assertive and be better at what they... Blah, blah, blah. And one of their dads is a politician who wants to close the thing down. And we're going to run into that again. And it's one of those weird holdovers from the Disney live-action comedies of the 60s as well, where there's always somebody trying to shut the kids down and take their beach or take the hotel or take the, the yeah, school. The minute or, the idiots check in, uh, we overhear a conversation about how someone's showing up to, to foreclose on the motel. That turns out to be sitcom stalwart uh, Richard B. Schull, who is the only recognizable face in this movie, right? I think. Let me run through my notes, because I have... I've probably written more notes on this film than anybody's written on Spring Break in five years. <clears throat> oh, no doubt. I My whole note, it just says old-fashioned and chipmunk smutty. <laughs> nice. Boring, plotless blah about two pairs of white guys who get double booked in a hotel and nothing really comes of it. 
Was this written in 1959? Sleeves level fairly low, all things considered. Wet t-shirt contest, obviously. A few good songs on the soundtrack. Cheap Trick and 38 Special. Penthouse model Kareen something. Kareen Wall. Kind of charming. Should have maybe had more lines. Perry Lang is one of the four idiots. Never funny. And an uncredited Jeff Garland as Gut Gut. Oh, God. I miss that. <laughs> I miss that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to make it a habit of reading my notes all the time. But when I look down, I normally have three or four senses. And for this, I just had War and Peace. The next up is not from a major company. I believe this is Crown International. And this is my tutor. She is worldly. Sophisticated. Alluring. Hello, Bobby. I'm Terry Green, your French tutor. He is young, inexperienced, unsure. There isn't a student made that I can't teach. A little conceited, aren't you? I'm very good. Crown International Pictures presents My Tutor. You and this kid getting it on? He's ten times the lover you are! It's a crash course in special treats, drag strippers, loose zippers, classic rods. Tonight's the night, fellas. Sacrifice of the virgins. Matching sets, nice assets, lovely tarts, private parts. Oh, yes. And now this feels like it's a step up in the smut. Like, it's definitely more of a little boy's fantasy of the older woman who shows up and is just, hey, I'm here to bang you silly for a summer and teach you how to do yeah, it. Yeah, it's a slightly and, better and it. it's a slightly better version of Private Lessons. Yeah, it feels a little bit more polished, a little bit less desperate and sleazy. They're trying very hard to justify why she would jump into that. Then they come to the moment that we've talked about with with uh, Night Shift and with uh, Best Little Horse in Texas, where inevitably you get to the moment where the guy goes, well, I guess you're just a whore. And that's the end of everything. Well, yeah, that just comes out of the, um, you know, the I'm sure Ebert had a term for it, but the the um, completely unnecessary act to conflict, which is, you know, to be rectified within 15 minutes. But and that's a good way to do it is have somebody scream. Oh, you're a filthy whore, whatever. It's not all that sleazy, but not very funny. Uh, half the movie feels like a familiar uh, coming-of-age tale and then interjected with some teen sex wackiness. It's got Crispin Glover in an early role and the great, great Kevin McCarthy. And I will say this, the first eight minutes of this movie, Crispin Glover's introduction, that is one of my favorite sound bites from any movie we've done so far. And it should be a meme because it's crazy it is a perfect example of how crispin glover would show up tuned to a radio from outer space and deliver his lines in a way that no other human being on the planet would ever think to deliver them. you know you just gave me an idea for a bonus episode uh teen sex sidekicks <laughs> like robert downey jr got to play that more than once oh yeah so we'll move on to joysticks <laughs> from the director okay. of wacko everyone's doing it but it's not vulgar <laughs> Kids play with their joysticks day in and day out, jerking back and forth. Everyone's doing it, but it's not violent. <laughs> like, where are we supposed to go? And everyone's doing it. A good clean song. Arcane! You want to play Pac-Man? You're Gene and Mommy? Oh, oh, oh. Crazy. 
been so long. Joysticks. Totally awesome video game. I'll say this. This is better than Wacko. It's not to say it's good, but it's better than Wacko. Here's what I don't understand. How did they not get sued silly for all their use of Pac-Man in this movie? I guess they must have. Somebody must have signed off on it. Maybe somebody thought this was going to be a major release and gave, like, gave them the rights. Uh, this is Animal House inspired. Uh, it's virtually the same plot as Animal House right down to the um, antagonist. Yeah, Joe Don Baker is playing the the guy here who wants to shut down the arcade because it's decadent and awful. And I'm not kidding when I say he is playing the Cesar Romero role from the computer wore tennis shoes and now you see him, now you don't. He's that guy. His daughter, played by uh, the very young and lovely Corrine Borer, who you might not know by name, but you definitely know her face if you are an 80s movie fan. Doing an 80s Valley Girl voice here that renders her absolutely incomprehensible. Yeah, and she's... You know, one of the only likable characters in the whole movie, John Grease and John Deal also pop up in this movie, two good character actors. Uh, and it really is just the Animal House template of a ostensibly colorful group of misfits who run rampant at a uh, video arcade. And Joe Don Baker is one of the disapproving parents who's going to do all he can to shut them down. The gross slob who's really good at video games is so gross that I find him off-putting. And the dork is such a dork. It gets into the trauma, like my favorite, it was your description of trauma comedies, and it does get into that. But one thing I do like about the movie, and I've seen it mentioned in other uh, reviews of the film, is that within the arcade, okay, first off, if you were a video game enthusiast or historian, you could watch this on mute and be fascinated by what you see. Because, you know, just to see the old cabinets and the old games together like that is pretty cool if you are a hardcore video game nut. But beyond that, what I like about this movie is that the entire group of video game nuts is a very eclectic group. Maybe an accidental subtext, but the arcade seems to be a haven for kids of uh, who look very different to congregate. Definitely a step up from Wacko in that it is a movie. It is a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end that functions like a movie. It's cribbed together from other pieces. Greg and Clark is still not anybody I would call talented, but definitely a step forward. And I will say that about this next film and this next filmmaker as well, because I was frankly surprised by this next one. We talked about William Lustig and we talked about Maniac and uh, Maniac is grimy. Maniac is a dirty movie and it feels like you've done something wrong when you watch it. Is your point that this is like his attempt at slightly more legitimate B-movie fare? An asphalt jungle, an urban skyline of fear, waiting, watching. Destroying. You're not safe anymore to walk the streets when every hour 163 more people become victims of assault. You live at the mercy of the animals who inhabit the streets of every city. The police are powerless. The law is corrupt. There is only one alternative. It's time to take a stand, because time is running out. You're not safe anymore. Their numbers are growing, and you must wage a war to eliminate the problem. Yourself. Vigilante. Definitely feels like Lustig was reaching for, okay, I want to do this for a while. I want to make movies that people go see, and that's just that looks like a movie. Uh, this is Robert Forster and Fred Williamson in a clearly Death Wish inspired vigilante crime thriller. 
it has a lot of dry spots, but it also has two fun character actors kind of vamping it up together. It takes a little while to get rolling. And whereas Drew maybe thought it was a, a stroke at legitimacy for William Lustig, I thought it was curiously tame. I almost, I felt I, I needed it to be a little more nasty, a little sleazier. Oh, I definitely could have used some more sleaze. And here's the problem. Robert Forster does get some righteous blood on his hands towards the end of the movie. And those scenes are pretty good. Uh, but it just takes too long to get there. And there's two subplots. There's the Fred Williamson idea, which is he's going to organize the community and it's going to be more of a group thing. And Robert Forster is very personal. And his is just about him and his family and what happened. I would have liked to have seen that same cast, with that same level of care to the, the filmmaking, then just crank it up a little. Robert Forster, he's in a courtroom and the person who killed his loved one or loved ones is set free. And he flips the hell out and is... Called in contempt of court, which is very unlikely in that situation, I think that they would, you know, give a little leeway for an emotional suit. And then beyond that, I think he goes to jail for contempt of court for literally six months. Yeah, there's a there's a long stretch there. Uh, (laughs) Wait, how long does a person normally? I thought contempt of court was like at most three or four days. Yeah, just until you say, hey, sorry, I flipped the fuck out back there, but you were letting my, you know, the murderer go. But I'm cool. I got it. And then we get into this little mini movie with Robert Forster. And and I think the point of all this stuff is to show that when he gets out, he has no other recourse but to turn to Fred Williamson's vigilante to exact the justice he demands. I do like Forrester in it. And it's a lot like him in Alligator. This is him at that age where he's not a leading man. It never quite happened for him. But he's got this great laid back, realistic quality that I think is in some ways better than like what a lot of movie star movie guys do. There is a weird scene. Maybe somebody can explain this to me. I watched the movie pretty attentively. and It's not that deep, but there is a scene late in the film where a gun massacre does happen, and I don't think it has any bearing on the plot at all. It's something they goosed up after they realized, okay, we need a little more blood. We need a little more. This this is an R, Bill. That's weird that for a Bill Lustig to kind of struggle to get it there. It is uh, if you are a, a, an exploitation fan or a Death Wish fan or a Bill Lustig fan or Robert Forster fan. This is a, you know, a B minus uh, B movie, but uh, not anything I'm particularly enthusiastic about. All right. So if we're talking about enthusiasm. Oh, boy. Can I just say. I never saw this before. I must preface that with I, I've seen most of the films of this ilk of the era, but I have never seen this. I'm, I'm with you. And man, Wild Style is the fucking bomb. Wild style, the house will rock. I love this movie. I love this thing. It is a window into a time and place. I guarantee you, Golan and Globus of Canon Films saw this film and put Breakin into production within a week. This is Breakin from the perspective of someone who was on the streets watching the birth of hip hop. And it's a revelation. It's great. 100%. And Charlie Ahern, the guy who made this, is not a typical filmmaker. This guy came at it through the fine art world and sort of through that training and through that sort of background, got interested in murals and they got interested in graffiti art. And that's where he met George Lee Quinones, uh, who is a real life tagger and who is the star of this film. And that's really what started it is he just started shooting street life. 
And then that evolved into this as a feature film. And this is real. This is what it would look like if you just picked a camera up. And do you want to know what it was like to tag a train at 3 a.m. in New York City? This is it. At first, I'm like, well, this is really thin. Go, and it's like his day and night routine. It's more of a character piece than a plot driven thing. And then I'm like, this is kind of thin. What, what, what's going to happen? And then like within 20 minutes, I'm like, it's not a plot movie. You're just supposed to be entrenched in this neighborhood for, you know, 90 minutes. Exactly. Do you want to know what it was like to see Grandmaster Flash play in a room that holds 40 people? Well, yeah, this is it. What blows my mind is that Fab Five Freddy, who was one of the producers on the film, had this idea, which was a film about hip hop culture, which was on its way sort of into the mainstream, but hadn't gotten there yet. And they brainstormed this this way to make this film. And it feels to me like if Larry Clark wasn't a pervert, this is what he could have made. No, it truly does feel like. I want to make the most honest possible portrayal of like this 17 year old kid. And does he deal with crime? Yes. Does he deal with drug dealers? Yes. But does he also deal with art and, and, and communicating with the other peers and, and having fun? Yeah. It's, it's a great film. If you are even slightly interested in the early days of hip hop culture or rap music at all, or graffiti culture, uh, check out wild style. Definitely. Cause it on- really only played times square and it's sold out. Every single show it played for three weeks. Can you imagine sitting in this theater in Times Square in 1983 and having that theater go berserk around you to this? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan. I mean, skinny Jewish kid, mid-80s, I was listening to like Roxanne, Roxanne, I want to be your man. I loved it. Loved you've it. got the Cold Crush Brothers, you got the Fantastic Freaks, you got the Rock Steady crew. Me watching it, for all I knew, it was a documentary or it was a really bad, low-budget thriller or a romantic drama. I didn't know. what it, I just knew that it dealt with rap culture. It's ground zero for the uh, film life of hip-hop. The soundtrack was produced by Fab Five Freddy and Chris Stein from Blondie. And you want to talk about a soundtrack that just has credibility from the early 80s. And there's actual Blondie on there if you listen. Um, but the other thing is, if anybody out there has a line on this, please... I want to find this guy's first movie because he shot another film with these same street kids. They came to him with the idea and they made a martial arts epic called the deadly art of survival, man. If anybody has that thing, please contact me because, Oh my God, I bet it's amazing. Now we move from one uh, great movie. I knew nothing about to another great movie about young people beyond that. They couldn't have anything in common. So this makes it an anti segue drew, Let's get our hands together for John Sayles' Baby, It's You. Oh, my God. What an immediately wonderful movie. This is a movie that five minutes into it, if you're not having a good time, we got different priorities in movies because I love this thing. If you like Lady Bird, watch this movie. Well, and it's so crazy. that This is right after Leanna. And look at the leap forward in terms of just filmmaking muscle between these two. This is a very aggressive John Sayles, who I think has made a jump into knowing now how he's going to make more commercial films. And this is a Paramount movie. Like, this was for him a, a bigger opportunity to get his work seen. At, at this point, prior to Baby It's You, I think it was anybody who watched indie film and, and film critics and film festival people knew this is a good filmmaker. Baby, it's you, I think, is where he that's where he became like mainstream art house. And he didn't become full mainstream until later. And, you know, you, it's just fascinating to chart the progression of John Sayles. Not only did he make great movies, but, you know, if you chart his writing and directing career, it really is just like a, a ladder of, you know, make different, interesting, challenging films. This is a romantic comedy it takes place in 1968. Is that right? 
And it reminds me a lot of Say Anything in that it is a girl who's going someplace. And it's funny because right after I saw Lady Bird, I said it's obviously different in many ways, especially the gender of the main character. But Lady Bird is of the ilk of Say Anything, an honest, sometimes brutally honest, sometimes tragically honest story about what it's like to be young, whether you're a plain Jane or a normal Joe or somebody different and unique. It's the dynamic here that I like is it's the girl who's clearly going someplace and the guy who's clearly not. And the Sheik, from the moment he sees this girl, knows I want to be in her life. I want to be around her. I know she's going somewhere. I know she's better than I am. And that is the thing that he is drawn to and the thing that makes it so incredibly unlikely that they will be together goes to some really interesting places. It's not just a strictly a high school movie. Uh, the, the leads are Vincent Spano, who's always been a likable character actor. Not a huge star, but I like him. And Rosanna Arquette, who uh, this is one of her first big roles, and she's always good. And as somebody who is next door to Trenton, New Jersey, boy, is she good at Trenton, New Jersey accent. Her New Jersey accent is flawless. She is uh, prickly, but very likable. Great appearance by Sam McMurray as the uh, the teacher at the school who, man, I love McMurray, and he is really, really on his game here. This is the only writing credit of Amy Robinson, who would go on to be a very prolific producer. And in fact, produced After Hours, which uh, Arquette's in later this decade. And it makes great use of some Springsteen tunes. I want to mention the Springsteen because it's pretty wall to wall. Like there's a lot of Springsteen on the soundtrack. They paid a lot for it and it was a pretty big deal at the time. It was not an easy deal to negotiate. Springsteen is very weird about his music being used in film. I I know this is going to be sacrilegious to some people. I'm not the hugest Springsteen fan. I respect him. I think he's a good songwriter. It's just not my cup of tea. I I admire him very much, but I, I wouldn't call myself a huge Springsteen fan. Here, I think emotionally, it makes as much sense to me as it ever has. Like this is where sales clearly lives and breathes Springsteen and he uses it in the right ways where I get it. I get what he gets out of it. I think that's a really cool choice and a very unusual one. Yeah. And your comment is a testament to the quality of the film, because at that point, a Springsteen doesn't necessarily need the money and B he must've seen something in the screenplay. He really liked for him to agree. I'll bet he met sales because sales is very persuasive when he's talking about his work. All right. So baby, it's you definitely check that one out. And now we move to a film I am fascinated. After all these years, we finally get a sequel to Max Dugan. Max Dugan? ABC says you'll leave the theater with a smile 12 feet wide. Max Dugan makes you feel good. The New York Times calls it full of outlandish surprises. Max Dugan is a complete crowd pleaser. Magic happens in Max Dugan. And KABC-TV Los Angeles insists, don't miss Max Dugan. Max Dugan Returns, rated PG, now playing at a theater near you. I am fed up with Neil Simon in every way. Go. This is another one of Neil Simon's shitty parent movies, and it doesn't add up to much. I'm okay with Weirdo Donald Sutherland. I think Jason Robard pours on the charm. But, dude, we've seen this movie already just doing this podcast five or six times. Max Dugan Returns is about an old man who returns to his daughter and her son, and he was an absentee father, and he's dying, and he has money and gifts, and it's meant to be bittersweet, touching, and and relatable, and it just feels like pap. I'm not even 100% sure what pap means, but that's what this movie is, pap. My girlfriend lived in Venice for decades, and her family had a house there, and she kind of watched Venice change around her over that time. And so part of the LA experience 
is if you've lived in one place long enough, you've seen it change and be like nine or 10 different neighborhoods. So watching this with her was great because it was shot basically in the block where she had her house. So she could see how everything had changed. She kind of talked me through that. And she is a real thing for young Matthew Broderick. So uh, that was part of the fun of this as well, because Broderick is in full force here. This is when he had been discovered as sort of a secret weapon on stage. Everybody kind of knew that this kid was the kid that you put in the movie. If you had a hyperverbal, clever, fun kid who had to kind of carry the film, him opposite Jason Robard, him opposite Marsha Mason, he is an old pro. Like already by this point, Broderick just fearless, like stands toe to toe with everybody and has great comic time. Yeah, he is great in the movie. Uh, uh, Marsha Mason, who, you know, could probably do this kind of melodrama in her sleep. She's good. Donald Sutherland is her love interest and a cop. He's kind of a good weirdo in it. I like him uh, lurking around the edge of the film. But again, it doesn't really go anywhere. Nope, it is kind of just like window dressing. It really just feels like, oh, this movie seems like it needs a cursory romantic subplot. It also features a very young Kiefer. And, you know, Herbert Ross, who directed this, he he gives it everything he's got. I just don't think there's much to work with. Like the house, you you spend as much money as you could. But, dude, right out, especially coming after Pennies from Heaven, to see him do I Ought to Be in Pictures and Max Dugan Returns back to back. What happened to that adventurous guy? What happened to that dude that made that wild, crazy, beautiful thing? I'll have to wait for that until we get to protocol. Woo! Can't wait. I mean, if you're a new Simon completist. Then check it out. It has a decent cast, but man, there's nothing there. He was a factory. He really was. Speaking of nothing there, Charles Bronson is in our next movie. And that man, I think we should start making fun of the late Charles Bronson's complete lack of effort on camera. I don't even know where to start with him because his politics, let's be honest, suck. And these movies suck. They are Gross. This is an early canon release for Charles Bronson. The title, 10 to Midnight. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer, and he's running out of time. I'm a mean, selfish son of a But I want a killer, and what I want comes first. He found some blood. He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. When there is no justice, this man is the law. Charles Bronson, 10 to Midnight. This is that era where Charles Bronson's movies started to get borderline pornographic. This is what an X-rated movie should be because it is filthy. When he's chasing them around in his underwear and he's beating women, and the serial killers like beating and attacking women and shit, no child ever, even accidentally, needs to wander into that theater. This should be what an X-rated film looks like. I'm hesitant to call it among Bronson's very worst because we're going to get to much worse. But it feels a lot like Chuck Norris's Silent Rage, which is let's take a, a low rank action star, put him in a movie that's half of a cop thriller and half of a horror movie. The killer is goofy, not scary. He's butt naked half the time. But that's the thing. He's really rapey and really gross. And it's distasteful. It's just an unpleasant sin. Right. And you start to wonder, like, what is it you're trying to impart? Like, lingering on this guy beating his head against the wall in his underwear and clutching a knife and keening and shrieking. This is not creepier. This is not character setting. This is just, it's filler and it's ugly. Andrew Stevens. um, Boring. This is the first of, I believe, four appearances this month by the great Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley, Drew. Give me a one sentence review of 10 to Midnight in your best Wilford Brimley. It won't get any smarter and it won't ever end. 
<laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you. It also features some great character actors. Lisa Eilbacher from Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, Joffrey Lewis from Everything Clint Eastwood Ever Made. And also the father of Juliette Lewis. Look, all we got to say is Jay Lee Thompson directed it. The ending of this is one of the most egregious borrows from Dirty Harry I've ever seen. And the whole movie is borrowing from Dirty Harry, Ted Bundy, Bernie Getz. And it all ultimately builds to, we get it, Chuck. Just shoot the fucking scumbag, because clearly that's all anything is about in his movies. That's the biggest problem is this movie came at a point where this conversation hadn't been advanced at all from Death Wish. And it was his whole career was shoot the fucking scumbag. And I want to point out my dad, who wouldn't take me to see subversive comedies, if he loved a movie star, we would go see it. I saw this in the theater at 12. That is inappropriate. 12 year old me disagrees with having seen this. On the Charles Bronson scale of uh, sleazy entertainment, I would give 10 to Midnight a 4 out of 10. The sleaze is probably about a 5, maybe even a 6 in some scenes, but the entertainment's at about a 1 or a 2, so I'll average it out to about a 3. Drew, earlier this episode, we mentioned that there was a Raiders of the Lost Ark reissue. Now I'm wondering, do you think that Paramount re-released Raiders of the Lost Ark in direct reaction to to Warner Brothers' high road to China? Tom Selleck's an ace. Look at my plane! Bess Armstrong's an heiress. I'll buy you another plane. And it all happened on the high road to China. Nothing but a spoiled, snooty, rich little brat. Daddy! You know, I only made one real mistake. What was that? I should have sold you when I had the chance. Tom Selleck and Bess Armstrong, High Road to China, rated PG, starts Friday, March 18th. Check newspapers for theater. Look, much has been made over the years about the fact that, you know, Tom Selleck had a chance to play Indiana Jones. He had the part. He had the part and he had done a screen test and they loved him and everything was great, except he'd also done a screen test for a TV show called Magnum P.I. And when Magnum got picked up, they had first refusal. So because that contract came first, he lost the chance to play Indiana Jones. Drew, if I told you I never saw High Road to China, would you believe me? I never saw this movie until two weeks ago. Well, and this movie limped through theaters. Yeah. I was excited. I was like, I'm sitting down at like nine o'clock on a Thursday night. And I'm like, man, this counts as work. I'm doing this for the podcast. I'm going to enjoy this movie. It's a, it's a big old fashioned adventure. No, this movie sucks. <laughs> yeah. Technically not inspired by Raiders. It got greenlit because of Raiders, but this thing was in production for a while. It, there was a book that came out and for about a decade, they tried to get this made. And there were a lot of big names attached to it. Like it could have happened with some pretty big stars And, you know, they had people very close to playing it, and then it just kept falling apart. And then Raiders is what finally kicked the thing into production. So I wasn't wrong, but I was partial. I was right in a different direction. And so I think the book started out very old fashioned and the book was meant to be more of a uh, sort of throwback adventure movie. Sidney J. Fury was the original director of this thing, left it at, at a certain point. But he was actually a replacement for the guy that originally developed it, John Huston. And John Huston loved the book. I can't imagine what the book must be because there is nothing in this film that stands out to me as this needs to be made or this is telling some story that needed to be told or I I just don't get it. Also, Wilford Brimley watch. Here he is again. The director reigns or at least credited director ended up going to Brian Hutton of Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. Talk about trading down. They I mean, they kept going until they found. I, I feel like the old standby for us in this movie podcast that we do is like when we hate a movie, we both type out all of the character actors who are in it. So at least we can show some love to the likes of. 
Brian Blessed, Robert Morley, the aforementioned Wilfred Brimley, Jack Weston. Um, these guys were on set for probably four days, and they did some fun bits in their moments. Well, except for Brian Blessed, who has a very unfortunate role. Lots of stereotypes, lots of ugly. Well, and you can yeah. tell that somebody somebody saw Lawrence of Arabia and didn't get it. There's a quote later in this movie that is so inappropriate for a PG adventure movie that I was like, I had to rewind it and hear it twice. I remember being shocked, but I don't remember what the line was. Tell me again. It's you something raping son of a bitch. Yes, baby raping son of a bitch. I didn't want you to say it. Now it's a bit. (laughs) That was awful. Yes. What is that? Nobody should say that. But like on one hand, I'm watching the movie and it is so knee deep in, in like colonial stereotypes and, and blatant misogyny. Bess Armstrong gets slapped around a lot. If you're trying to make a slightly more adult adventure movie, you're turning me off at every turn. These are ugly characters doing nasty things, and I don't care about any of them. Ironically, Tom Selleck is wildly likable. So why is his heroic character such a dick? Isn't that crazy how you can take a guy who has the innate charm of him? And Bess Armstrong, for God's sake, is a fairly charming actor. But zero between them, man. Nothing, nothing, man. They are like brother and sister who can't wait to get away from each other in this movie. So as much as I really wanted to be like, hey, this is a fun, forgotten adventure movie. Um, let's just move on. Now, if we're going to talk about old fashioned throwbacks, and we're going to talk about movies that we've never seen before. This next one has both of those covered. I don't even know what to make of it. It's The Black Stallion Returns. Three years ago, a magical, mystical motion picture made the whole world believe in the beauty of friendship and the power of love. Now, the greatest adventure of all time returns as the race of a lifetime. Black Stallion Returns, rated PG. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. No, it's weird. I'd never seen this, and part of it is because I love The Black Stallion. I think The Black Stallion is one of the great kids' films of oh, all time. Oh, no, no, no. I, I like The Black Stallion more than you. Uh, we have to measure it next time we see each other. I think it's one of the best family films I've ever seen. And obviously it's because I grew up in that era and it was on HBO constantly. My sister was obsessed with horses. I love the story. I think my mom and dad both watched it. Uh, and, and, and now I'm glad that you seem to like this movie, but I'm just going to say this and get out of your way. This is not a good sequel. It's just not what you would think a sequel to The Black Stallion would be. It's why he goes overseas. It's just like the facts of life go to Paris. What's the... The people that had the horse before the whole shipwreck show up, and it turns out to be this Arab tribe that wants to take him back for a horse race in Morocco in the desert, and the kid has to go with him, and then the kid has these wild adventures in the desert, and Vincent Spano shows up as an actual sheik, not the sheik from Baby It's You. It's a weird, weird take on a sequel, and the idea that you actually Kelly Reno and Terry Gar show up. Terry Gar needs to be the female Dabney Coleman on this show, because anytime Terry Gar is in something... It is like a rose petal in a sewer. And there's also an 85% chance that Francis Coppola produced it because clearly he just wanted her to work. So, yes, she adds some class to this. Not terrible, but kind of perfunctory, forgettable sequel. I do wish Carol Ballard would come back. One of the reasons that first film is a classic, it's not just because it's a boy and his horse. It's because it's one of the most beautiful films of all time and largely told silently for the first 30 minutes or so. There is a real director at work in The Black Stallion. The Black Stallion returns Robert Dalva is a guy that came up through the sort of ranks as a 
camera guy and in the editorial department. And there's nothing special about the work he does here. He doesn't really stand out as a filmmaker. Uh, he didn't really go on to do much after this. There was no need for a sequel. Nobody was asking for a Black Stallion 2. This was in that era where Coppola was still trying to figure out how to be a studio, and I just don't think he was any good at it. We now switch over to one of our favorite sidebars, the saga of why Disney had no fucking clue what they were doing in 1983. We're talking about trench coat. Margot Kidder. I'm a writer. Robert Hayes. I'm a lucky guy. In their first movie together, they find suspense. Don't shoot! Action. Not bad for a wimp, huh? And romance. To write a great novel, you gotta live a great novel. Oh, oh fate worse than death. Too bad she's writing a murder mystery. Trenchcoat, rated PG. Opens Friday at a theater near you. Check local listings. This is Disney when they were at that moment where they wanted to make more adult movies. They wanted to push towards uh, an adult audience, but they were still locked into the notion that the only thing people knew them for was kids films. And so Trenchcoat was made. It's a Margot Kidder, Robert Hayes comedy. I got to take umbrage with the word comedy there. It hangs on a premise that was used throughout the 80s, which is I'm not really a spy. I think Robert Hayes suffered from his biggest hit being airplane Uh, he's been good in other things lots of television in particular but in this he's just playing the milk toast bland guy margot kidder does all the heavy lifting in this movie she has a few bits where her physical comedy skills come to bear and are slightly uh surprising but man it's just stuck in this old school ancient template will she be caught will she find the killers will they find out she's an imposter and it's just tiresome. I'm going to I'm going to say something harsh. Margot Kidder's not a lead. She's just not. She was around the culture of the late 70s and the early 80s and she knew everybody and she, you know, obviously Superman was a big hit. I would not say that Superman is dependent on Margot Kidder. I would not say that Margot Kidder was essential to Superman's success. Really, this is the first film that I think I've ever seen where I can judge her as a I'm supposed to carry the movie star. No, absolutely not. Maybe you had to make this to learn that. Like, there are some people who can do it. There are some people who can't. And I just don't want to spend two hours with her on a movie screen. And I do think Robert Hayes, like you said, man, Airplane sets this expectation. Leslie Nielsen got reduced to being a buffoon for the rest of his career. And I'm not entirely sure. Uh, some some could say elevated. Trapped. Because there was nothing that else. man, but he has a cottage industry in being like the patriarch of broad spoofs. You know, I, he also was a he was an actor, and I would have liked to have seen a little more range. I just think it's tough. I think Airplane was such a behemoth, and it was really, really hard to shake. So I don't know that Hayes survived it. Ultimately, some of these Disney live action films from the late seventies and early eighties deserve a second look. However, Trenchcoat is not one of them. It's not good. Moving on to something that is also not good, and I think I might deal with some umbrage from the horror fans, I'm about to trash a Lucio Fulci film. I'm glad you're going to go here. I'm going to go ahead and let you take the lead as we discuss The Beyond. That's not true. It's not possible. I was there. 
This house was constructed. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell. Because through that gateway, evil will invade the world. To be honest, fairly interminable. I think the film has a little bit of power towards the end when it starts to get surreal and reality starts to break down. And there are some images that kind of strike me in that carnival of souls, brute force, weird way. But isn't that sometimes, I mean, and I mean this because I do it too. Uh, when you apply nightmare logic or something to a film, isn't that just a way of saying it gets super weird, but I dug it anyway? And I'm saying that I don't think this movie earns those sequences. I think Fulci is one of those guys who was capable of big ideas and he had some really interesting ways of trying to do things. I don't think he really could put it together start to finish. That is not a slam. And I know we're going to hear from some some horror fans immediately. Even the biggest Fulci fan has to admit that his stuff is fairly indecipherable. And there is something about a Fulci film that even when I was like 15, I knew that I had to like beware because something creepy could happen and it might, it won't be a typical American kill where it's like, hiya, cut away. There's stuff in these movies that will shock and scare me. For me, it's the last 10, 15 minutes where I feel like this thing kind of lands a few punches. And up until then, it's all over the place. And I gave it the biggest chance I've ever given it when I saw it theatrically on its big reissue uh, back in the late 90s. And I'm glad I saw it in the theater at least once. I've had films that I've changed my mind about in the theater because the theatrical experience was so effective. Suspiria went from a movie that I really liked to a movie that I loved dearly because of that theatrical. This did not. Uh, Did you expect me to like this one a bit more? I think I did. Yeah, that's the thing about Weinberg. You never know what direction I'm coming from. Bob and Weave, man. Bob and Weave. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Wilford Brimley, and I'd like to introduce my next movie out of four this month. A Dennis Quaid vehicle called Tough Enough. Dennis Quaid brings his music, boxing, and acting talent to the screen as a country singer having a hard time hitting the big time. With a wife and child to support and a pile of bills to meet, he has to find another way. The Tough Man Contest is the answer, and our man is pretty tough. This kind of determination won't be checked, and one success leads to another. What is it? It's like a lawsuit. What is it? What is it? It's a recording contract. What do you think it is? You're going to pay you to sing? You're going to pay me to sing. I'll be goddamn. Tough Enough is an unusual and uplifting success story. Stan Shaw, who showed up in uh, Sting 2 as a boxer, Goes out on a limb here and plays a boxer uh, because Stan Shaw was a boxer. I love Stan Shaw. I just love his face. One of the one of the, the the things I've learned doing this show is I've now put Stan Shaw's face to his name, and he is great. And his girlfriend or wife in this movie is played by Pam Greer, and it's it's a subplot that doesn't really amount to much, but it's just nice to see Pam Greer playing a normal woman, not a prostitute, not a killer, not a you know just a normal woman. And I was going to point out it is. So refreshing because this movie looks from the outside like it's going to be pure exploitation, And to have Pam Greer and Stan Shaw as a really likable couple in the middle of this film was a nice surprise. And it felt like um, not what I expected from the genre and a nice piece of casting. And especially because you've got Dennis Quaid and Carlene Watkins as the other main couple in the film. Quaid, of course, very young. And Carlene Watkins, 
Did you recognize her, Scott? Because it drove me nuts and I had to look her up and it triggered a flashback to a sitcom I had forgotten existed that I watched every episode of. Best of the West. In days of yore, in Western lore, a man returned from civil war. His heart beat pure beneath his vest. His name was Best, Best of the West. Oh wow! No, I did not recognize her, but she was she was pretty good in this. Um, and and uh, it's also worth mentioning that the late great Warren Oates is in this, playing his typical shifty, shady, manipulative bastard, and he's barely breaking a sweat, and he's good in it. Uh, the film is just very basically uneventful. It really just feels like a country western take on Rocky. There's some great moments actually between him and his wife. That, that there's some nice character building there. Certainly watchable. Yeah, Bruce McGill plays another one of the guys who calls the uh, fights. It's fun seeing him show up. Best known as D-Day in Animal House. Love love him. And it's not bad. And if you're in the mood for a young Dennis Quaid as a, a bare knuckle boxer in Tough Guy Contest, it's fine. It's a, it's a perfectly agreeable little movie that does exactly what you think it's going to do. And you know who else is agreeable and often does exactly what we expect him to do? Wolfer Brimley? No, Richard Farnsworth. <laughs> oh, I love Richard Farnsworth. My, what a lovable. I am so grateful that we have vehicles for him like the Gray Fox. Uh, this was one of those movies that I remember critics going berserk for. Looking at it now from the perspective of somebody who at 48, I'm, you know, certainly thinking about age and thinking about mortality and things. And this movie is both a charming riff on the dying West and a beautiful look at how frustrating it is to get old and no longer have a purpose or feel like you don't have a purpose. He's a stagecoach bandit who serves 33 years in prison and is released in 1901. Now, stagecoaches are long gone. He hasn't been in this world for 33 years. So you have this perspective of all he knows is criminal behavior. And now he's out in a world he doesn't recognize. Add on top of that, the the very cool uh, idea that this is a gentleman. This is not a sleaze bag. This is a guy who is good at crime, does it, and is not a killer, is not a monster. And Richard Farnsworth, who you know from The Straight Story, you know from uh, Misery, he's amazing. This is, I think, one of the best uh, movies of this episode. There's a terrific relationship between he and a teacher. She is somebody who I think isn't terribly comfortable with the world that she's living in, with the new century. And that's a beautiful, tender little relationship that's played out. I love the relationship between him and all of the the guys in his gang, and I think that's pretty well etched. It's just one of those movies where it's all character, and as you watch it, you just live with these people, and you live with this guy, and you are carried along on the sheer force of personality. I mean, that's Farnsworth. At the opening of the film, you're dealing with a man who is just about to enter very old age. You're already in, like, the story of this is the twilight of this guy's life. You kind of have that slightly fatalistic attitude throughout the entire movie, and then you have Farnsworth's performance making him so buoyant and charming. It's bittersweet throughout. This was directed by Canadian filmmaker Philip Borsos. It was his feature debut, and this was going to launch him into being a giant filmmaker for the rest of this decade. But it didn't. We'll see. We'll get there. Another guy who I kind of expected bigger things from was a gentleman named Rick Rosenthal. I believe Rick Rosenthal is the gentleman who directed Halloween 2 for John Carpenter. I believe you are correct. And then what was the film he made after that? He made a film with a young Sean Penn and Isai Morales, a scathing portrait of juvenile detention centers and a damn good film called Bad Boys. In their world, 
Every dream is a dare. They're gonna have to use that. They want a hero, a king, a champion. He wants a new life. I just dreamed that you went away. So did I. With you. The odds are theirs. Do your time clean and you walk. The choice is his. Sean Penn. Bad Boys. Rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Boy, do I like this film. Yeah, dude. I, and I was afraid that this would feel like preachy or, or pedantic or old hat. Nope. This is a brutal tough movie and it does have that exploitation vibe of don't do what these kids are doing it does have that cautionary tale vibe but it also works as a very tight melodrama about you know betrayals and and crime among young young people that shouldn't be old enough to commit these horrible crimes and they don't soft it's not like these are misunderstood kids sean penn and alan ruck at the beginning of this they're really terrible kids i loved alan ruck playing his sidekick and i think it's Actually, pretty affecting when Ruck leaves the film. It's a prison movie in some ways because it's he's got to learn to survive and he's got to learn who to live with and he's got to figure out what his place is. And there's his cellmate, a younger Jewish kid named uh, Horowitz, played by Eric Gurry. And Horowitz is a kid who is genuinely a sociopath. Yeah, and what ends up happening to him is shocked me as a kid and it's still a brutal sequence. I think one of my favorite things about it is the dynamic between Viking and Tweety, played by Clancy Brown and Robert Lee Rush. And Clancy Brown here, Clancy is so good. And he's the guy, he's like the top dog when uh, Sean Penn first arrives. And watching them clash and then watching Sean Penn have to take him down and then become top dog, like that's a prison sort of trope that we've seen play out. Yet, it works here, and it really you get invested in it here. It seems like this was uh, written from a place of either experience or adjacent experience, because man, there are some moments of, of brutality and punishment and behavior among these prisoners that could only come from somebody who's been there. It's such a great, charismatic Clancy Brown performance, and he's young, and he's creepy, and he's. He's awesome in this. Yeah, he is. He's one of the most memorable characters. It's As per the title, it is mostly a boys movie, but uh, we would be remiss without mentioning an early performance and a very affecting performance by Ali Sheedy. Uh, Dude, that scene between her and Isai Morales is beautifully shot and harrowing. Really terrifying. Rick Rosenthal, after Halloween 2 and this fantastic uh, juvenile detention center thriller, would go on to something called American Dreamer. <laughs> I mean, Rosenthal was one of those guys, man. You really thought, based on where he started this decade, like, those careers fascinate me almost more than the successful ones because the the pieces were in place. This is the kind of prison movie that will scare an 18-year-old kid straight because it, it really does seem to come from an honest place and it's entertaining in, in a prison movie kind of way, but it's also leaves you with, oh, shit, I better not. I better straighten my act out. I don't want to be in there. If there is any reason that the Gray Fox got overshadowed when it came out, it is because of our next film, which uh, hits some similar notes, kind of covers some similar ground, but was just a juggernaut at the end of the year and with critics. And, uh, you know, for little wonder, uh, let's talk about Tender Mercies. Hey, mister. Were you really Max Sledge? Yes, ma'am. I guess I was. <laughs> When are you going to start singing again, sir? I'm not going to start singing again, son. I've lost it. He was a star who loved and was loved, yet never learned to love himself. 
He was a man unused to tenderness, yet seeking it. Tender Mercies. I am a huge Robert Duvall fan. Him and Gene Hackman are still my favorite actors of all time. Well, you and I saw Get Low at the Toronto Film Festival together, and I remember the conversation beforehand. We were talking about this movie and about Duvall. This was a change for him where it humanized him. Because Duvall had always kind of played a hard ass yep, before Yep, this. and he'd always been so good at the fast-talking kind of sidekick or lawyer or, or accomplice. And this was him not only stealing the screen, but doing it in such a quiet and understated way. This is the good version of Honky Tonk Man. Yes, good call. It's a uh, he, Robert Duvall stars as a former country singer trying to acclimate to normal life, quitting alcohol, writing songs, being happy in his life with his wife, Tess Harper. Uh, young Ellen Barkin plays his estranged daughter. This is a guy who, when he walked away from music, it was because he just, he didn't work as oh, a person. Oh, you know, the country music scene has passed me by and, and I've been gone for 25 years and now everybody admires me. So now I want to stage my big comeback. And that, you know, leads to a big uplifting finale. This is about a guy who was relatively famous and is now happy being anonymous, but is still kind of struggling a little bit with, I used to be adored and now I'm kind of forgotten. Uh, Horton Foote, wrote the screenplay, um, and I believe it won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Yeah, and I think Bruce Bear is for directing. Part of it is that he came from outside this culture, so it's for him a film where he's sort of observing and learning and and looking into a culture and a, a place that he's not from. And I think Beresford has a real artist's eye and a real painter's eye. I love Duvall singing in this movie. I love Duvall as a country singer because, man, it feels real, and it feels very authentic where, where it comes from. Wilford Brimley... His fourth film of the month. Unbelievable. Wilford Brimley must have been like never sleeping in 1982 because he's everywhere this month. My generation mostly knows him as The Thing and the Quaker Oats Man and Cocoon. And you look at how he was used this month and the fact that he played Southerners and the fact that he played uh, people from New York. Brimley was a guy who really was. He could do anything you asked and he would do it perfectly and you would never have to pay attention because it would be so good. And you know what else is good? You know what else is the best? I'm not going to lie. Your Wilford is good, dude. Thank you. So now we're going to do this next movie. I'm going to say this. I'm very excited because I love this movie. Why am I not surprised? I'm watching this movie and I like it very much. And I'm doing my notes and I'm thinking, I bet you Drew loves oh, yeah. The Outsiders. You get tough like me and you don't get hurt. Watch out for yourself and nothing, nothing can touch you, man. The book, The Outsiders, captured the imagination of a generation. The director has been acclaimed for films like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. The stars are some of today's most talented young performers. The motion picture is The Outsiders, rated PG. This is based on an S.E. Hinton novel, and people should know S.E. Hinton is a woman. As a kid, I did not know that. Uh, and she's written some amazing novels about young adults. Mid-60s, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greasers versus Soch. Standard framework of the uh, conflict between these groups, their girlfriends, the boys, the tough guys, the nice kids, the bad kids. But the dialogue, and it is the cast that elevate this well beyond any kind of forgettable 60s throwback. Uh, I, I am blown away by how good everybody in this movie is. I think it's fantastic, and I'm going to now turn it over to Drew. I'm going to highlight one of the stars of this film is Stephen H. Burham, who shot the movie. Uh, Burham's a phenomenal photographer. I, I think Burham has done terrific work throughout his career. 
Francis Coppola, when he wants that sort of perfect candy-colored movie world, it's a big thing to ask. And I think he puts a lot on his cinematographers and, as a result, gets career-best work out of guys like Storaro. It is a gorgeous film. And let me interrupt you to ask you, let's share the story about how this film came into Coppola's lap. Because this book is still taught, I think, heavily in schools and is still read everywhere. And it was being taught in schools back then already. And a class who had read it decided that they wanted to see a movie and they wanted Francis Coppola to direct it. So they sent him a letter saying, here's the book. We want you to direct a movie. And he did. It's one of those things where he read it and immediately saw that movie. And for him to shoot it in scope and for him to treat it like an epic. Not only was he so enamored with S.E. Hinton that he directed The Outsiders, he could go back and direct Rumblefish. Just rattle off. If you don't mind, because I want you to do it. Rattle off the ensemble in this movie. C. Thomas Howell, Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Diane Lean, Leif Garrett, Michelle Myrick, Tom Waits. It is an unholy cast of young talent. There are like there's your American graffiti of the 70s. There's your outsiders of the 80s. There's your dazed and confused of the 90s. And those three films. I love that Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is the weird, awkward looking guy at the front at the edge of things like he is not in the center. But. When you look at the just the brothers in the movie, see Thomas Howell playing Pony Boy, you have uh, Patrick Swayze playing Derry, and then you have Rob Lowe as Soda Pop. Those three alone, it's such a great dynamic in the book, and they are such a great representation of brothers. We saw Tex, where they had some of this same relationship being played out, older brother being forced into a parental uh, sort of role. You see those things over and over in Essie Hinton's work. She really was just writing what she knew, and she was writing so young that there's no, there's very little invention. But this movie gets it dead right because the, there's something about the dynamic between those guys and all that young boy energy. They're like mountains of puppies attacking each other when they're in houses together. In a dumber movie, it would be their hooligans and with one nice guy. And the rich kids are all assholes and one nice girl. And, you know, this is a complete mashup of that convention. And there's a reason that the book and then the film were so well-beloved. And it's because they're written from an honest place. They're not just, oh, let's make a movie about the kids in the 60s. No, this was I was a kid in the 60s and I desperately want to evoke that time for people. And I almost didn't make it out. And here's why. The urgency of how persecuted these guys feel. For those who haven't seen the film, there's a big uh, incident that happens in the middle of the film and two of the guys go on the run. And it's Ralph Macchio as Johnny and it's C. Thomas Howell's Pony Boy. And they go on the run together. And I love that Matt Dillon is sort of the wrecking ball that keeps showing up and causing damage everywhere he goes in this movie and wants to help them and wants these kids to be okay and really wants to protect them, but can't because he knows what role he's already been cast into. He reminds me of River Phoenix in Stand By Me, where he talks about how the minute they know that you're a thief or they've decided you're a thief, you are a thief forever. And and that's Dallas in this. He's a kid who has already been put in that box. You could make a whole movie about just the relationship between Dallas and Cherry Forever, or Cherry Valance, played by Diane Lane, who, by the way, broke my 13-year-old heart in this movie. She's amazing. Between this and Stains, you can totally see how she became a breakout. And there's a lot of interesting little tidbits on this movie. There's a 22-minute a longer cut of this movie. I and I'm okay with. I it's not a case where I feel like they um ruined anything. I know people that really dislike the the longer cut, but it was just a case of him making it a little bit more true to the novel and putting some stuff back that uh readers had asked him about over the years. That's still available, right? The long cut, the uh, director's cut or extended? I think that might be the only thing that's on DVD at this point is a thing that has both. 
Because I don't think you can get just one by itself now. I thought it was fun to mention that it also inspired a short-lived television series in which you could see both David Arquette and Billy Bob Thornton. I cannot praise this movie high enough. This is a case where I showed this to my boys and they had a huge reaction to it. I think it's a movie that stands outside of nostalgia or time. I think it speaks directly to that that way we all feel at that age. And all the stuff, the outside, the socias and the greasers and all that, that all fades. It's very true to how every kid feels when they're uh, at this age and you don't know where you fit and your friends are the only ones who have your back. It's a great film. And now we're going to close with maybe clearly not the very best film of the month, but one of my absolute favorites. I, I always grew up very defensive of this movie when compared to the filmmakers two previous films. This one sort of pales in comparison, but Drew, let us pick through the hilarious silliness of Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Ever wonder what it's all about? Sex. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Learn why doctors want to help you. Uh, can we have your liver? I'm using it. Why foreigners want to hurt you. And why things fall apart. In the movie that knows why you exist. You ever wanted to know what it's all about? Nope. Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Rated R. I get it. It's not Holy Grail. It's not Life of Brian. It is not a narrative feature. But... I think there is something really brilliant here, and to me, it shows how far the Pythons came from where they began to where they ended, because this is it. This is the goodbye. If you look back at the very first episode of the show, and then gradually, I think more human quality crept into their work, and I think meaning of life actually has a lot on its mind, and I think it gets to some of those things really beautifully. The meaning of life has so many great sequences, it's tough to knock it for not being a narrative. Starting with The Crimson Permanent Assurance, which is a standalone short film that is so good that it basically is the precursor to Terry Gilliam's uh, solo career. Yep, very true. It is a fascinating short. For me, the opening highlight is, of course, Every Sperm is Sacred. This, to me, encapsulates everything I love about Monty Python. It is satire that we can clearly get the target. It is both endearing and, and kind of sweet, but also dark an homage to big musical numbers, but then also what it's talking about is very unseemly and kind of tacky. It's funny because Monty Python actually forced me to, if I was going to fully appreciate what they were doing, I had to get smarter in order to do so. I had to understand the difference between Catholicism and the Protestant faith and kind of how that evolved and what the whole argument about birth control was in order to really get this joke. That was something that I loved about Python. They pushed you if you wanted to get everything out of their work, you could watch one level or you could come back to them after you've read or after you've learned and you would get more. And that to me is what's so rewarding. There, there is such brilliance in some of these sketches. The whole scene in the school where they do the live sex demonstration, anything you teach them is boring. That is one of and Cleese in that sequence, by the way, is unbelievably great. The audacity to to write that scene and then go, yeah, this will work. Because if it doesn't work, boy, do you look dumb. Think of writing the Mr. Creosote scene and then having to execute the Mr. Creosote scene. And Mr. Creosote is one of those jokes that if you're off at all, that becomes so unwatchable. The horrifying contempt that, that Cleese has for him in that entire sequence as he's talking. I seem to have trod in Monsieur's sick bucket. 
I don't want to be the guy who explains a joke because that's obnoxious, but the idea, the middle class and the servants are just so used to the upper class being filthy and disgusting that this doesn't even phase them. They are perhaps the very best comedy troupe I've ever seen in terms of filmmaking at timing. They have spooky good timing. When you watch that scene in the Mr. Creosote scene, watch the timing of just the vomit spurts and whoever is literally pressing the button is a comedian because there is comedy in the timing of how they're throwing up on the poor cleaning lady. One line that always kills me when the guy's missing his leg from the tiger and he says, <laughs> woke up one sock too many. <laughs> Great phrasing. I think one of the highlights of the entire film and one of the highlights of Eric Idle's career, the universe song is one of those unbelievable pieces of writing by Idol. And I think he is a great comedy songwriter. And, and it's like, it's delivered as if like just another weird throwaway sketch. But if you really like listen and to the lyrics and pay attention to that song, it's masterful. Well, it's as great as uh, always look on the bright side of life. It's better than that. But I, I think that that's the thing is Idol writes comedy songs that are funny the 30th time you hear them, not just the first. And that's hard, man. Look, I, this is one that, I think it got a bum rap for, for part of the 80s, but I also do think gradually people figured it out. I think that the Python film career is so short that when you look at all three of the major features, because I kind of feel like Hollywood Bowl and and now for something completely different, they don't really count. They count, but not in the yeah. exact same way. They're asked. But there's, there's yeah. three feature films they made, and all three of them stand very separately. All three of them are, I think, in their own way, remarkable movies and the meaning of life is the best goodbye that group could have ever hoped to get before we close this episode i would like to send a thank you to a a fellow podcast of ours i am a big fan of the show we hate movies and for listener request month i requested they cover tarzan the ape man and they did and i don't mind saying as a longtime fan of we hate movies it's one of the funniest episodes they've done in months Thank you to them for picking my request, and thank you to them for promoting our show. We are very grateful. Keep up the good work. You guys are funny. Uh, We will be back in two weeks with April of 1983, and I got to tell you, it is turning out to be one of the weirdest years that we've done so far, just in terms of how varied every month is. We're going to get horror films. We're going to get outer space stuff. We're going to get Kirk Douglas next month. We're going to get David Bowie as a vampire. We're going to get the most overscored movie we've done. We're probably going to get some more Wilford Brimley. We're going to get one of the great gender-bending sci-fi weirdo masterpieces of the early 80s. And we're finally going to get some Sam Raimi. We'll see you back here in two weeks for April of 1983. (laughs) 